One of the army's most senior officers writes an open letter about tackling racism following the protests over the death of George Floyd. The British Army is not immune to incidences of racism and I wanted to put over our position, my position if you like, as a personal perspective and as a senior army guy on the army board. Why NATO is talking about China. How are we going to deal with the 5G opportunities and how do we do that in a way that ensures the safety and security of our own networks? And the wartime memories of the oldest admiral in the fleet. I think he would certainly have achieved flag rank. I think he would almost certainly have become a vice admiral or even a full admiral in his own right. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. This last week has seen demonstrations around the world in protest at the death of George Floyd, a black American who died in police custody. These people were protesting in London at a Black Lives Matter rally. We've seen one incident. Everything else other than that has been great. It's been basically 100% peaceful. This isn't a riot. This is just us speaking because we haven't been able to speak. Well, in response to events around the world, the Commander Home Command of the British Army, Lieutenant General Tyrone Urch, has sent an open letter this week to his commanders talking about the importance of tackling racism. We'll hear from him in a moment. But first, I spoke to Major Javel Joel from the Royal Logistics Corps, who's on the committee of the Army's BAME network, that's Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic Network. And I asked him for his response to the letter. I was pleased that there was a reaction from um, senior leadership of the British Army into the recent events that have um, occurred in the United States and also um, a, a few other things that were mentioned in the, in the letter, um, namely COVID and um, Windrush. So it was just, uh, for me personally, it was a kind of reassurance that it was being acknowledged at, at a high level that these, these things, these issues were being spoken about uh, within the British Army. And what's your experience? Have you ever encountered any discrimination? I wouldn't say I've encountered discrimination um, because the... British Army is a meritocracy at its, at its root and therefore work is acknowledged and you're able to progress uh, based on that hard work is, is my um, experience. I have experienced the odd comment said in, in passing or heard a, an odd comment here and there, but nothing of note, nothing really that is um, of consequence. And why did you decide to join the Army's BAME, that's Black Asian and Minority Ethnic Network? Initially, I was uh, a bit reticent to join, but then when learning that the, the BAME network wasn't exclusively for uh, BAME individuals within the armed forces, or within the army, sorry, uh, and it was a, an area or space for conversation and also fully open to non-BAME members of the army as well to be informed about what that conversation and also contribute to the conversation. We spoke to the service complaints ombudsman last month about her report, her last report as ombudsman, and she said it showed that BAME personnel were represented in the service complaints system. Does that surprise you? It does surprise me a little bit because the service complaint system is open to all service persons. It's not um, exclusive or restricted to uh, ethnicity. But I think that it should be celebrated that there's a high number of complaints with the army because it shows that the army is open and uh, is ready to acknowledge the grievances of all service persons and also um, get back to some sort of resolution 
That was Major Javid Joel there. Well, earlier, Claire Sadler spoke to General Urch, Commander Home Command, exclusively for SIPREP, and asked him why he decided to write the letter. Well, I felt very strongly about uh, where we were. Uh, events unfolding around the world had come to a bit of a, a crucible. And the British Army is not immune to incidences of racism. And I wanted to put over our position, my position, if you like, as a personal uh, perspective and as a senior army guy on the army board. So I thought the best way to do that was to be to write an open letter. And General, you spoke in your letter about the anger spilling out into the streets of London. Do you, do you understand the frustration, the deep frustration that people are feeling? Well, as a member of society and the public, uh, I understand how I feel. I can't talk for others. Uh, but my family and I felt strongly about it and I uh, have some sympathy with their views. Clearly, as a 54-year-old white guy, I have not been uh, exposed to racism personally, uh, but I have a huge amount of sympathy. And some of the measures that we put in place in the British Army uh, get after the instances of racism, uh, and I think we're making great strides uh, in combating it. You say that the, the military isn't immune to racism, and the, the service complaints ombudsman's highlighted uh, the military's figures that show that the majority of people who feel they've been bullied don't complain because they don't think much is going to happen. Do you agree? Do you think that's the case? Well, I can't comment on specific cases, clearly. Uh, what I can say is that uh, where people are prepared to come forward and have the moral courage to do so in support of the Army's values, every single person in the British Army undergoes that training. They know that if they come forward, they have the courage to do so. I promise we will do something about it. And we have had cases which we have investigated and we have taken disciplinary action of various sorts. There are other cases ongoing at the moment which we are investigating and we will take disciplinary action against those people if they're found guilty. And there may well be cases in the future. And I promise you, if they come to light, we will do something about it. How do you create an environment where the victims of bullying and harassment feel confident to speak out? How do you create that? scenario? I think we should do three things, if I might. I think that education and training is a principal strand of educating and getting our message out there. So that's why every single soldier in the British Army does mandatory training every single year in inclusivity and diversity. For those more senior, like me and others, there is additional training. And we bring in teams from outside uh, to conduct additional training as well. We should provide support to those people. We have the Unacceptable Behaviours team, which gets out uh, into our units. We have uh, teams which go out and do climate assessments. Uh, and we have confidential hotlines. But I think most importantly, we have created the conditions to give our people a voice. We have set up the Army's BAME network, which got 2,000 members now plus. And we have created a whole bunch of people that are there to support and to listen. So I am the champion of the Army's BAME network and I report directly to the Chief of the General Staff. And I can tell you and everyone in the British Army that I will take their views directly to the boss uh, and report to the uh, Army Board uh, if those issues need reporting. So we have champions and a brilliant network now, I have to say, of advocates and allies that are there to support the BAME committee themselves and the wider BAME network. 
So clearly there is positive action being taken and you are, are trying to improve the situation, but there are still reports of racism. And do you understand, therefore, why it's probably um, uh, difficult and somebody from an uh, ethnic minority background might be reluctant to join the military? Nothing could be uh, closer to my heart at this particular moment in time. As the guy on point for recruiting into the British Army, this is a passionate theme of mine. And we mirror society. We therefore recruit from all walks of life and every community. And we are not immune to instances of racism. But we have a fully inclusive program. We want all talent from all parts of the country, from every community, to join the British Army and come and have a full career kind of with us. Uh, and that's what we're getting after. And I think our statistics uh, speak well for this. So we were 101% recruited last year. That is a fantastic achievement for the British Army, if I might say. And of that, 17% of the inflow into the British Army was from the BAME community. They were UK BAME and our fantastic uh, members and soldiers uh, from the Commonwealth. So 17% of inflow into the British Army was from the BAME community. And the Wigston report suggested there should be a harassment survey across defence in 2021. Is that going to happen? I can't honestly comment on that. So, you know, I'm a soldier uh, in the British Army uh, as the champion for our BAME network. Um, that sounds like a good thing to do. And if that's what the Ministry of Defence uh, is directing, I would fully support that. Uh, and contribute uh, to the best of my ability. Uh, you were also in charge of the military's response to COVID-19, which uh, you mentioned in your letter. Many of the, the COVID task force have been stood down now. Are they ready to be called back again if there is a second wave? Uh, yes, indeed. I think, I think you, the public would be the first to agree that <laughs> it hasn't quite unfolded in a way that we might have anticipated. I think in many ways that's a good thing. The National Health Service has not been overwhelmed. Our hospitals have been able to manage. That's a good thing. And what the military does brilliantly well, if I might say, is planning. Planning is everything. The plan is nothing. And so what we have done is developed a whole series of contingency plans. And the very first contingency plan, bearing in mind six months ago we didn't have a COVID-19 contingency plan, what we did have is a flu pandemic plan. And we use that as the basis for our planning to deliver a force that could help out the government and do anything that the government wanted us to do. Bearing in mind we are 100% in support of other government departments. Planning and execution, especially uh, uh, with the Nightingale hospitals that we saw, if the government asked you to build schools, would the military be ready to do that if a capa extra capacity was needed? Yes, I heard about Nightingale schools uh, on the news the other night. Um, we, we can do anything that the government would like us to do. So we had 20,000 troops on standby. We've, it was quite clear we did not need so many, but we'd rather be overprepared than underprepared. And we put some amazing young uh, men and women in support of the government uh, out doing a whole bunch of really great things. Lots of niche subject matter experts. There were engineers, there were medics, um, and there were logisticians doing a whole bunch of stuff. And we have many more soldiers, uh, and from the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force, and our civil servants, uh, who could come back and help out if there was a new task that we needed to do. That could be schools. It could be care homes, it could be anything that the government wanted us to do. But we're ready to do that. That was General Urch talking to Claire Sadler there. Well, with me now is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, what do you think General Urch is trying to achieve by speaking out about racism now? He's taking forward what the present 
Chief of the Defence Staff, General Nick Carter, started when he was Chief of the General Staff. The tough side for the Army is retention. You can't retain a toughly uh, trained but dissatisfied Army. It's also the General's view of the place of the Army, I think, in society, helping with civilian society, a sense of right and wrong and anticipation. All the things that civilians have, it has to be within the army itself. Otherwise, the army doesn't retain the good people that it's got. Yeah, and, and on the subject of the pandemic, he does seem to be saying, as you, I suppose you'd expect, that the, they're ready to do anything the government asks of them. Well, they do. When you're an age of the civil power, it means you go, the, the government says, well, you're going to do so-and-so, you're going to do it. And that may be Iraq, but it also may be building a nightingale. Right, Chris, will stay with us. This is Zitrap. Well, NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has warned that China is spreading its influence, both economic and military, across the world, and the West must stand together to face any challenges. China is coming closer to us. We see that in the Arctic. We see they are heavily investing in critical infrastructure uh, structure in Europe. Uh, and uh, we see, of course, China also operating in uh, cyberspace. Uh, so this is not about deploying uh, NATO into the South China Sea, but... Uh, uh, responding to the fact that China is coming closer to us. Well, NATO defence ministers are meeting later this month. Meanwhile, the Washington Post has reported that Donald Trump intends to cut America's military presence in Germany by more than a quarter. This has prompted a flurry of official no comments, but there have been no denials either. Ivo Dalda is a former US permanent representative to NATO from 2009 and 2013 he served. I asked him whether Jens Stoltenberg was right to raise the issue of China now. China is an issue that is slowly but surely making its way onto the agenda in Europe and including uh, at NATO. Remember in the leaders meeting in London uh, just this past December, there was a, a discussion about China among leaders about what it represented uh, with regard to the security and economic uh, environment in Europe and transatlantically. And I think that uh, given the kind of debates we're having here in the United States, the kind of discussions we're having across the Atlantic about how do we deal with the rising China, it's appropriate for the NATO Secretary General to put this on the agenda. And what do you think NATO's response should be? Well, the reality is, is that China is already in Europe, actively economically. It has been investing uh, significantly uh, in European economies. It is creating, as part of the Belt and Road Initiative, an, an infrastructure presence uh, throughout, uh, particularly Southern Europe and into Eastern Europe. Yeah, on the subject of technology and infrastructure, on the subject of Huawei, a very controversial subject here in the UK, the Secretary General has welcomed a review of its involvement in the UK's 5G network, which was announced last month. Do you welcome this? Well, I think there's a very important discussion that needs to be had among all NATO countries about how are we going to deal with the 5G opportunities and how do we do that in a way that ensures the safety and security of our own networks and the role of Huawei as the most advanced and in many ways the most present 5G operator is one that needs to be discussed. The problem I've had uh, so far is that the U.S. in particular has laid down diktats uh, rather than trying to figure out what a common strategy is. How do we promote 5G in our own economies? How do we do so in a safe and secure way? And what is our collective response to the challenge that China poses? That's the right way to go about it, rather than telling countries you're either with us or you're against us. And if we could put all of this into the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, how do you think this may be changing the geopolitical landscape? Unfortunately, 
uh, the presence of the one country that usually would lead these efforts, the United States, has been marked mostly by its absence. The U.S. has adopted a uh, America first, but frankly, America only uh, strategy, and that has allowed China, uh, in particular, as a major power, to play a much more important role than it perhaps would have had if the United States had conducted itself in the manner it used to, dis- to conduct itself. It's a global problem. How do you think China may emerge from this pandemic? Might it be demonized, as the kind of comments that are coming out of the US have suggested? Or do you think China actually may prove to be the saviour if it finds the vaccine? There's the one story that emphasizes the role that China has played in the initial phases of this uh, pandemic. The fact that it did hide information that was very important for the rest of the world to know about. The second narrative, which is also true, is that once the Chinese acted, they acted decisively. They acted in a way that perhaps only an authoritarian country like China could, but it shut down uh, most of the country. 750 million people were affected in terms of their travel, found a way uh, to control the spread of the disease within China. Unfortunately, by that time, it was too late, and it has already spread to Europe, to the United States, and now uh, increasingly globally. If we could just turn to the US troop presence in Germany and the reports this week that there's a possible partial withdrawal of US troops from there. There's been no comment from the White House so far, but no denials either significantly. Um, isn't it better to have a force that can rotate in and out quickly rather than to have a standing force? Well, yes, it's actually better to have both. Uh, and indeed, as part of the evolution of the way U.S. troop presence in Europe has evolved over the past uh, few years and a decade or so, is we relied on a standing force that is there primarily to support both our, our European security commitments, but also our global commitments. We're there because it serves our fundamental interests. One of the really difficult things is that not only are troops going to be cut by about a third in Germany, but the uh, number of troops that are allowed into Europe on a rotating basis are also going to be cut by 50%. So you can do the rotation that today, in fact, is essential part of how we both uh, support our NATO commitment uh, and uh, serve our national interests. If it turns out to be true, both of those situations, what's your reaction to that? Well, I find it deeply distressing as someone who has spent uh, a lot of time thinking about how the United States should encourage its uh, transatlantic uh, relationship and how it should build that transatlantic relationship. Uh, having a troop presence in Europe has been fundamental, not just to providing security for Europe, but to providing security for the United States. Uh, we learned in the first half of the last century that it is extraordinarily costly to uh, go and fight and win a war in Europe, to spend extraordinary amounts of money, extraordinary numbers of lives to fight wars. We learned that a presence in Europe would prevent war. We're there not because we want to do a favor to Germany or, frankly, anyone else who's there. We're there because our security interests demand and are much better served by having a troop presence that prevents wars and that makes the basis for lasting peace on the continent. As a former United States permanent representative to NATO, what kind of geopolitical advice would you give to Donald Trump? Most important advice uh, I would give to to President Trump is I would to any president. Our power, uh, our interests, our freedom, our security, our prosperity depends first and foremost on working with like-minded countries, our allies and partners in Asia, in Europe, and around the world. 
we are not going to be able to compete effectively with countries like Russia or China without having the one thing that we have and they don't, allies and friends. And so I would reinvest in our alliances, reinvest in our partnerships, reinvest in our friendships with the countries who we've been standing shoulder to shoulder with for the past 70 years. That was Ivo Dolder, former US permanent representative to NATO. Uh, Christopher, what do you think lies behind the decision to speak out now about China from the NATO Secretary General? One thing is what's happening next in the next week, and there is a meeting of the defence ministers. The Secretary General gets up and he, he talks about what's going to be the uh, main subject, and the two subjects are going to be, one is going to be coronavirus, and the other is going to be China. Should they counter what China is doing? The answer is probably not. China at the moment is on a military build-up that we've never yet seen. And there's nothing much that anybody could do. The other problem that the NATO members have, they do believe that they have an unsophisticated White House when it comes to thinking, what do you do about problems? At the moment, we've run out of ways we can talk to China. Christopher, on the subject of the partial withdrawal, or the reports of the partial withdrawal of US troops from Germany, um, what is your reading into that story? The thinking of the Pentagon at the moment, why have we got the size of forces in continental Europe? Why are they there? Why do you need so many? What do you do with them? Is there a point in having an armoured division, for example, an American armoured division there? Where would an armoured division go without any backup, without any consensus? And I think that what we're seeing is just the tip end of very sensible judgment. And that is, if you say, look, we don't need so many people think you're backing out. But maybe it's just that you're, you're rethinking of what you want to do with the forces that you've got. Now, the next stage of training for the UK's carrier strike group got underway this week with F-35 Lightning jets leaving RAF Marham to join HMS Queen Elizabeth in the North Sea. The aircraft and their crew were joining other personnel from 617 Squadron already on board. Laura Macon issued reports for SITREP from RAF Marham. When an F-35B Lightning jet takes off, you know about it. And there was not just one, but four that left RAF Marham in Norfolk this week. Headed for the North Sea and the deck of HMS Queen Elizabeth. The whole mandate for going to do this is to train day and night how to get from the ship to the ship and actually warfight uh, and deliver a capability. And it's not just about the pilots. We've got engineers learning what it's like to fight the whole system in a maritime environment. And we haven't done that for almost a decade. Group Captain James Beck is RAF Marham Station Commander. He's flown F-35Bs himself since 2015 and says as the most technologically advanced aircraft in the UK fleet, there's a lot of learning to do. The jet is so different to anything that we've ever had before. So there's a new way of engineering, a new way of flying it, a new way of, of working to and from the ship. The, the autonomy is just incredible. Um, and as such, we've got a blank piece of paper in many areas and we're now just starting to describe what that looks like. Getting those procedures nailed down is integral to the UK's carrier strike group being able to be declared warfighting ready. And for the RAF and 617 Squadron, it's been a long road. So talk to me about the timeline then. Where are we in terms of the training process and then 
getting everything fully operational and having a carrier strike group that's ready to go. We started flying under Sovereign Operations back in 2015 over in Edwards, California, where we, we fought alongside the Marine Corps, the US Navy and the US have to test it through, its, through, through what it really can do. We then set out our test pilots to work out how this jet works on this particular carrier. The two don't necessarily just go together. We've got to ensure it's safe and we understand what we're doing. Towards the end of last year, we put it through its operational test where we were working out, just scratching on the surface of how we fight it. Then we taught our syllabus at the beginning of this year. And, and really, this is the culmination where we start from a warfighting capability. And that will come together towards the end of this year where we meet up with the United States Marine Corps who will be sending um, quite a large number of jets alongside us and that we'll really be stretching the system to understand it all and then realise actually are we good to go to war and once we've got that assurance at the end of this year the intent is to be able to declare initial operating capability maritime which is a major milestone in the programme. While just four of the 15 F-35Bs currently based at RAF Marham are taking part in this next stage of training more will soon follow. That was Laura Macon Isherwood reporting. Well, this week, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, has celebrated his 99th birthday. Much of his life has been under public scrutiny as the husband of the Queen. But before their marriage, the Duke served as a naval officer during the Second World War in relative anonymity. Here's the Duke talking about his time as first lieutenant in the destroyer HMS Welp in Tokyo Bay when he witnessed Japan's surrender. Being in Tokyo Bay with the surrender ceremony taking place in the battleship, which was, what, 200 yards away, and you could see what was going on with a pair of binoculars. It was a great relief. And he recalled when his ship picked up British prisoners of war. Our ship's company recognised that they were also fellow sailors, and so we gave them a cup of tea. But, I mean, it was an extraordinary sensation because they just sat there, and, and both sides, I mean, our own and their, I mean, just tears pouring down their cheeks. I mean, they, they just drank their tea. They, they, they really couldn't speak. It was the most extraordinary sensation. Well, Professor Eric Grove is a naval historian and academic, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, is still with us. Um, Eric Grove, Prince Philip joined up with the Royal Navy in 1939, but when did he start his active service? At the beginning of 1940, when he was sent as a midshipman to the battleship Paramalis that was, that was covering convoys in the Indian Ocean, and then he was transferred also into in the Indian Ocean to the cruisers Kent and, and Shropshire and served in Ceylon. Because he was still officially a Greek, there was a certain reluctance for him to be put into a more active theatre. Uh, but this changed when Greece came into the war, and so he came to the battleship Valiant and played a, a very important frontline role in the Battle of Matapan. In fact, he got mentioned in dispatches for his control of the searchlights that played a key role in the battle. And he saved his ship from night bombers during the invasion of Sicily in July 1943. That's right. He was transferred to the escort destroyer uh, Wallace, she went to cover the invasion of Sicily and was in fact attacked by aircraft. And he made a decoy, a very effective decoy, which the Germans bombed rather than the ship. And everyone on the ship was quite convinced that the first lieutenant, as he now was, he was second in command of the ship, had saved the destroyer. And as we heard, he witnessed history in Tokyo Bay. Absolutely, yes. He then went, went to the destroyer Welp and uh, he was in Tokyo Bay and was there when the um, armistice was signed on board the battleship Masura. Christopher Lee, when did it all end? At the end of the war, he'd had a, what we used to call a good war, and he could see a, a career ahead of him because at that time he was still a single man. But the more he got involved with the royal family, the more the pressure he got from his uncle, Mountbatten. It was clear to everybody 
that they were going to get married, and they did so in 1947. And at that point, he realized that he wouldn't have a long naval career. You couldn't be a future consort, a future prince or whatever of the Queen of England and just simply stay in, stay in the Navy. And so when the king died in, in 1952, it was clear from that point, end of naval career. And he said, the career's gone. Now what do I do? I'm just an amoeba. And Eric Grove, what do you think was his most formative experience of the war? I think probably being first lieutenant of Wallace. It was his first sort of experience of something approaching command. And of course, after the war, I mean, uh, he did he did continue his naval career to an extent. In fact, the Queen was a naval wife briefly in Malta as first lieutenant of a C-class destroyer and then, of, and then famously captain of the frigate Magpie. It does make you think, doesn't it, Eric, what he might have achieved if he'd been able to stay in the Navy long term? I think he would certainly have achieved flag rank. I think he would almost certainly have become a vice admiral or even a full admiral in his own right. In fact, it was rather nice when the Queen made him Lord High Admiral to mark his 90th birthday because he certainly had the ability to be a very, very able officer. Mm, Christopher, and he still retains that title, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, well, Lord High Admiral, yes, but also Admiral of the Fleet. And once you're an admiral of the fleet, it's like, like being a field marshal. You don't, uh, you don't lose the title. He's the oldest guy in the Navy at the moment. I tell you, what, I once asked Lord Mountbatten, I said, do you think that Prince Philip would have got to be an admiral if he'd just stayed in the Navy and hadn't been a queen? And Mountbatten said to me, yes, of course. Should I have wished it? He may have been born in a sort of villa bungalow in Corfu, but he was a Greek uh, prince. Christopher, thank you. Eric Grove, thank you as well. And that is it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. (laughs) 